0: Welcome to Tech Whisperers, the podcast that takes you inside the playbook of the world's best digital leaders. This is a show for digital and business leaders who are passionate about learning from the industry shapers and market makers. Join your host, Dan Roberts, as he unpacks the unique stories, leadership philosophies, and answer the call moments that define and differentiate the best leaders of our day. Our goal is to help you gain an edge and move you beyond your comfort zone so that you are driving more impact and value for your team, your company, and your career. Let's get into the show and hear from another amazing Tech Whisperer.
1: Well, welcome back everyone to what is gonna be a very special edition of Tech Whispers. There's so many questions going on today around return to work, return to office. What is the office? What does it mean to us going forward? And all these questions are being addressed in a brand new book, called Office Shock, and today I'm excited to introduce you to the three authors who describe office shock as abrupt, unsettling change in where, how, when, and even why we work. They go on to say on page one of the book, office shock and echoing aftershocks will continue indefinitely in unpredictable patterns. Now that sounds pretty unsettling to all of us, I get that. But this is a book, as they say, it's a positive book for negative times. It will equip you with the tools and the mindset you need to, to make smart choices about the future of work for you and your company. Christine Bowen is one of the authors. And just a fun fact about Christine, we first met back in the 1980s. We were both very young back then, by the way. She was an integral member of our first board of directors group. And we've gone on to have an incredible journey thanks to her and her peers back then. I also wanna highlight that Christine was a member of Jack Rockhart's team at MIT in what was called the Scissor Group, the Center for Information Systems Research doing groundbreaking work back in those days. So Christine, I wanna start with you. You know our audience really well. You know the C-suite really well. Why is this book so important to them now? Christine, take it away.
2: Well, thank you, Dan, for having all of us here to discuss the book. And since you you mentioned my early association with your firm, I guess we have to say kudos to Paul Ouellette for having the foresight to have a woman on his board. I really appreciated that opportunity. That was great. Well, while our book is... Focused on individuals, organizations, and community policymakers in all and any fields, I see the opportunities for very strong messages for the tech whisperers. They're um, moving into important leadership roles in the companies that are forward thinking, and therefore they're involved in all of this. Remember that the office shop we're talking about. Started was kickstarted actually by the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which sent everybody back home to work. And the technology that all of them were using is all part of what the CIOs of this world oversee. So their ability to provide that support for people who are working from home is absolutely key. Now, we know that there were many challenges for for people who were working at home. It wasn't great for everybody, but the technologies that made it possible were were very, very important. But what's really also important here is that where you work is just one of the seven spectrums we talk about in the book. I know we're going to get into more of them, but here's the picture. (laughs) And of the seven, we have... Where and when you're working is number six. We don't see that as the most important question. And it's really important that that we look at these other spectrums that are part of the decision about your work and home life. And the first one on our list, for example, is purpose. And that individually, your purpose, purpose for the organization, as well as the community as we were discussing and these seven spectrums make up the core of the book and that's what I think we really need to be talking about today.
1: Yeah great start Christine I appreciate that and uh, Joseph Press great to great to have you Uh, welcome congratulations third at least your third book and you know you really helped to uh, form the A-team here of authors with your background as a workplace architect first uh, as a digital transformer, second MIT trained, PhD, uh, your other books, Transformation, in the Digital Era, and also story making, a book on story making, which we're terrible at in our profession, Joseph. So we need to do another podcast just on that because we are terrible at that. But you know, I want to kind of jump in with you and, and have you from your unique perspective. I'm gonna ask you the question I'm not supposed to ask, like, how does this story end? How does this movie end? Take us fast forward, a C-level executive who reads this book, Office Shock, how do they write the next chapter of their story?
3: Well, it's a very important question, Dan, and the end of the movie should always have some happily ever after aspects. And the happily ever, after aspects in most organizations is being able to make a transition, it can be to make a transition of a business model, make a transition into a new market segment, transition from a product to a service. In the book, in Office Shock and the research in the book, Ideals, we refer to the transformation that happened at Philips. Philips going from a consumer electronics company to a technology healthcare company. And when we see successful transformation happen, it happens over a long period of time, but there have been some critical decisions that have been made along the way. We think that the critical decisions or choices that need to be made today have to go across those seven spectrums that Chris mentioned. They also have to have a compelling vision of a better future. As futurists, we know the importance of being able to tell a story from the future. And so our our book is all about, you know, how can you create those stories? How can you be inspired to create those stories and to co-create those stories together with others? Because I think ultimately, that's what success is all about, Phillips. Yeah, any other organization that you've seen gone through some of those transformations. EA is another example. Patagonia is another example. They all had that clarity of a better future, but flexibility on how to arrive there. And that's where these choices across those spectrums are so important.
1: Yeah, great insights. And thank you for being up late there in Israel with us. Uh, I know it's late your time and we appreciate these insights you're going to bring to the party today. And Bob Johansson and I, not our first rodeo, Bob, we've done a number of panels and fireside chats over the years, really always enjoy these. And, you know, I want to congratulate you. I told you when, when you first told me about this book over a year ago, that this was going to be a blockbuster. And uh the book actually surpassed my highest expectations, Bob. So great job to you and the team. Just a point of clarity, Joseph talked about You're all futurists, right? You represent the Institute for the Future, which is the the longest running think tank uh, in the world. But this is not about predictions. Can you just clarify that for us? What you, how you think about these things?
4: Yeah, it's, it's maybe our uh, challenge in life is everybody thinks futurists predict the future. Um, and that's really not accurate. Fortune tellers predict the future. <laughs> We're not fortune tellers. So nobody can predict the future. Uh, if somebody tells you they can predict the future, you shouldn't believe them, especially especially if they're from California. But what <laughs> you can do, what you can do is look ahead and think future back. Uh, So we think in this new book, 10 years out and get out of the noisy present. You know, the present is so noisy. It's so noisy today, so polarized and so noisy. If you think future back, that gives you a chance to find that clarity that Joseph introduced. We want what we call in the book, flexive intent. We want to be very clear about direction and thinking future back helps you develop that but we're not about prediction, we're about provocation. We're here with our foresight to provoke your insight. And the seven spectrums of choice are the framework that we give you for making your choices given those external future forces.
1: Well, another, I, I like that provocation and we need that, right? In a good way, cause you're gonna help us think about these things and chart the course. And you forced me to bring out Alvin Toffler's book, right? I went, <laughs> I went back and found Future Shock. And one of the quotes in there, I'm not going to give the date just yet, but in a quote, he says, uh, he noted that accelerated rate of technological and social change leaves people disconnected and suffering from shattering stress and disorientation. He's talking about future shock. That is so timely, right? He wrote that in 1970. That was a few years ago, a few decades ago. <laughs> and so, you know, and interesting, I, I believe Toffler was one of your first board members at the Institute for the Future.
4: Yes, he was on the planning group that led to the creation of Institute for the Future, which was a spinoff of RAND in 1968.
1: Hmm, interesting. So page one of the book, you provide a critical definition of office shock. That sounds like a cross between Toffler and Simon Sinek. Okay, (laughs) And, and it goes like this. Office shock is abrupt, unsettling change in when, where, and how, and even why we work. Office shock and and aftershocks will continue with no end in sight. Why, thank you, Simon Sinek, why we work will be at the epicenter of office shock. Talk talk more about that. Give us some context, Bob.
4: Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. You know, Simon Sinek is the guy who wrote the book called Why, and he's really an inspirational speaker that helps people look at their own purpose, their own why, if you will. Toffler was a master a master at framing the future. You know, just that notion of future shock was so powerful, so magnetic, so inspiring for so many people. And what we're doing riding on the top of the wave is to say it isn't, it isn't future shock anymore in the abstract way. It's office shock in a very specific way, focused on how we work and, and how we live. And providing that future back view, it helps us be future ready and helps prepare to be future shocked. So to get back to your question to Joseph about what's the end of the story, to me, the end of the story is to be future ready, future ready. And you want to be future ready by having your clarity of direction, having your clarity of intent, but also being exercised. We talk a lot in the book about gaming and the value of gaming. And, you know, I work with the army war college, you know, they think of this as, as war gaming. So gaming is built into this future. We've got to practice in low risk ways. So our story is a story of future rev- readiness, but it's also a story wrapped, wrapped in our clarity about where we want to go or why, if you will.
1: So good. So good. Christine, um, one of the ways that we live happily ever after, right, the way we get to what's next, future ready, is we need a new language, right, around all these things. And I always chuckle because I hear a lot of C-levels talk about return to work. To me, that makes me chuckle because that implies nobody was working during the pandemic. So I don't think they mean that. But give us a new language around the office, office shock.
2: Well, we, we have introduced some, some new terms in the book. Some people questioned whether or not we should do that, but uh, we're very happy with them. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the office. And the problem with the term office is people immediately think of physical buildings. But the office is actually anywhere you work. And the much better question is, what is the best location for you to be in to be productive and getting your work done? That might be at home. That might be in an internet cafe. Or you might be a digital nomad living on a tropical island somewhere, and that's how you're contributing to work. So the word office has to be really broadened in that sense. Second term that that we are introducing, well, we didn't introduce office, but we are introducing the term officing, which is the verb about what it is you do when you're working. And so it's more definitive than the word work. I mean, work can be so many things, but officing is what you're doing when you're doing office work, no matter where that is. And the third term, which is my favorite, is office verse. And I think we have to thank Joseph for that one. (laughs) As people become more comfortable with the metaverse, I think they're going to embrace the concept of the office verse, which is basically the metaverse in the office. And so this is where you will be able to work in any location, at any time, in person, or via your avatar, which is another very interesting concept that we talk about in the book. And over the next 10 years, we're really going to see dramatic changes in the technology that support all of this. And again, who will make this happen and work smoothly? Your technology whispers, the, the CIOs of the world. So this is, you know, another way to underline how important their role is going to be in all of this.
1: Yeah, what a great opportunity for C-level executives out there to turn this, the noise that Bob talked about, into, into new opportunities. And I think that we'll differentiate companies on many, many levels. Joseph, uh, Christine gave you the credit for coming up with OfficeVerse. And, we know Metaverse, there's a lot of hype around that. There's a, a company who tried to uh, own that space. I don't think they will, but you might have a perspective on that. But tell us more about the OfficeVerse. Page three has a really great diagram, a great graphic talking about the different options, the range of offices. So what does OfficeVerse
3: mean to you, Joseph? So I do want to give credit to Bob for the original graphic. And because of Bob's insights on the matrix of questions around where do we work and when do we work, where we can work face-to-face at the same time, we can work remotely at the same time, we can work face-to-face and be remote, but at the same time, we can also be working virtually and be face-to-face. So the idea of these, what we refer to as archipelago of work location options We were really thinking about the office verse, yes, inspired by the metaverse, but introducing a new concept where everyone should be more cognizant, more conscious, to be more explicit about the choices of where and when they work. And everyone should feel, as Chris said, the flexibility to make those choices based on What are the choices of the other six spectrums? So, for example, we can imagine that if we want to be making some choices about our climate impact, well, we could probably anticipate that it makes more sense, if it's possible and convenient, to be working at home. If we think that we want to increase the innovation in an office, Well, we need to be working more face-to-face with people who are different than ourselves because that's the way to break out of the familiar words and concepts and mental models. So the idea of an office first was more about empowering everyone to be conscious about the choices of when and where we work as a means to achieve those higher level objectives of more climate impact, of more different and more belonging in the office, to be more agile, to really raise the conversation to a level that again, as a former architect, I can say that it is always hard for me to say that, well, maybe the physical environment is not the best place to be able to make an impact, to be working with people who are different. But again, in my experience practicing architecture and specifically workplace design, I believe that's a fact and my research indicates that. So that's why we wanted to take this opportunity when everyone is asking the question, do we go back to the office two days a week or three days a week? Do we work at home four days a week or three? Are we gonna be as productive? Are we going to be as innovative? Taking the opportunity, while everyone is asking those questions to elevate the conversation to those deeper, more important spectrums of choice. Yeah, I like how
1: you're changing the conversation there, Joseph. And Bob, you talked a minute ago about being future ready. And it made me think of one of the quotes in the book. It says, the present is so noisy, so painfully and violently noisy. Many people are stuck in a cage called now. We need to release ourselves from thinking only present forward. Everyone can relate to this, Bob, right? I mean, it's, I think a lot of people feel they're in that cage. C level leaders feel like they're in a cage. They're, they're battling in the C suites about Joseph's questions. How do we go back? Is, is there a metric? Is there a number? How do we put, you know, all these, all these different conversations that are getting us nowhere? So as a pragmatic futurist, how do you do what you do so well? (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, I think, in a way, it's easier looking 10 years out than it is just one or two years out. And you, know, we're often asked as futurists, how can you think 10 years ahead? I can't even think one or two years ahead or even six months. The reason is because it's easier. It's actually easier to get centered, to get focused 10 years out, to understand what are those giant waves of change that are so big? We can't influence them, but we can choose. We can choose whether to ride them or whether to at least avoid being hit by them. <laughs> so we're in that frame. So as, as leaders, we need to think future back in addition to present forward. And you know, we should put most of our emphasis on the now, and that's, that's important. That's where we have to spend most of our time. But if you look 10 years out and think future back, that gives you the perspective that gives you the fresh way to identify your clarity and choose and choose your intent so you can think future back but you look to that future for clarity you look back and you look in the present you look there for patterns and that's where experience does have value and you know you all who are the tech leaders in companies you know that this tech, the tech we're using right now, this isn't new. Zoom was not new. <laughs> we, video conferencing started in the late 70s and it took 50 years to be an overnight success. And it took pretty much COVID to make it happen. And luckily, luckily, you had done your homework and you were ready. And the tech companies were ready, luckily. But it really did take that 50 years. So what we say is it's 10 years back from the future, 50 years back from the present. So we think in 60 year swaths of time, and that's what you need to become future ready in this this very crazy world, this world that, that the Army War College first called the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, it's gonna get worse. This is not gonna calm down. So that's why we need to view this as an opportunity, not to go backwards, but to go into something that's quite different
1: yeah Bob, I first saw you speak over over 10 years ago and I um, being the skeptic that I am, I went back and checked on some of your work and I'm like, you know how can they be this good and, and you are I mean you you get these things right more times than not and that future back thinking you know is a really big part of it and I love the graphic in the book where it talks it goes kind of right to left future next now and it, right. it just helped me to really think about that that way of future back thinking. Joseph, there's another tool that I've added to my toolbox that I think is really good. Christine talked about the seven spectrums. Could you just kind of share what that means? And you know our audience, right? We're we're kind of black and white people, and the spectrums are kind of imply gray area. So talk about that. Talk about the seven
3: spectrums. Yeah. So a couple of things, specifically keeping you know the technology mindset in mind, which, yeah, it has to be black and white. You've got to have infrastructure. You've got to have data. You've got to have mobility. You have to have all those things. And what we aim to do with the seven spectrums is, number one, to, again, be very conscious about the choices that are being made. So, for example, if we're looking at the spectrum of augmentation, trying to find the right balance for an organization, for its culture, between human-enabled and technology-driven. And that question is becoming front and center with AI art generators, with chat GPT. So in the chapter about the spectrum of augmentation, we bring in those examples to already show that the choices that need to be made are already here so it's not even about you know the the future per se because those choices are front and center and again what's different about the spectrums of choice is that technology moved from the back office let's say 25 years ago when i started my digital transformation career then it moved to customer and user experience okay, with mobility Now, because of artificial intelligence, it's influencing decision-making, nudging, et cetera. So really the choices that technology folks are facing are at a different place. And it's a different place because now they can influence choices about outcomes, the economic outcomes. So what kind of information about the bottom line versus ESG metrics. So all of that information is now available. And again, a tech whisperer should be able to have a conversation to say to CEO, to board, this is what's possible. How might that influence our future? How might that enable us to accelerate the transition to more sustainable practices? And so the idea of the spectrum of choice really put out that it's not black or white, but there are some choices that should be made aligned to the strategy, aligned to the desired impact, aligned to the levels of of belonging and what CHROs are aiming for. And of course, the levels of agility as organizations will continue to need to Ebb and flow, and change the organizational models, change remuneration. All of those choices are incredibly important. The last point I'll, I'll add about the the toolbox is that we were we put the spectrums of choice into a metaphor which is called the mixing board. And the idea behind the mixing board is once choices have been made across those seven spectrums, those choices will need to be synchronized with. Individuals in the organization, other leaders, they may have different points of view with what the choices of the organization and and we do feel that it's very important, particularly in our decisive decade, which the Institute for the Future is referring to the next ten years, because of the climate crisis, because of pandemic, because of the uh, all the other office, all the other shocks that are happening. There has to be some synchronization also with the communities that organizations are engaging with or or serving or are a part of. So those are a couple of the, the key points of this idea of a spectrum of choice. Not black and white, should be an open conversation. And then secondly, the importance of synchronizing with other choices so that there is, as Bob said, flex of intent, clarity of where are we going, flexibility on how we will arrive there yeah the beautiful
1: glossy color pull out in the book on those on the mixing board the the different the different spectrums and i think it's brilliant actually because so many people in technology are musically inclined <laughs> and i think the mixing board is going to really resonate with them on many many levels you know bob it might be odd for us to start with spectrum number 6 but I think it's an important one because of a point you made in a panel we did with CIOs earlier this year. It's where most are starting. It's what most know. But why is that important for us to start there?
4: So this spectrum is the spectrum of time and place. And it's the obvious starting point in a way, the sense of where is where are we going to work and when are we going to work? And. Of course, we were scrambled, as Chris said, we were scrambled out of the office by the COVID shutdowns. It wasn't an option for most of us. We were locked out and had to figure out a way. And remarkably, the people working remotely, the people working without offices, these people who were quite unprepared for what happened, they were remarkably productive. In other words, they were able to do office work with no offices. It was shocking (laughs) in a positive way as well as in a negative way. And as Chris said, it wasn't wasn't fair. It was unfair if you weren't ready, if you didn't have good bandwidth, or if you had kids running around, or if you didn't have a space to work. It was unfair, but it was more productive than anyone expected. So the image we're presenting in the book is how can we go back to basics and ask how can we be better than being there? How can we be better than we were? So it's not going back to the office. It's going forward to something that's better, something that's more productive, that has a higher sense of belonging, that has a higher sense of cohesion, that has a stronger sense of being future ready. So that's why we're thinking in this spectrum. But it all comes back to where and when Where and when does work get done? And that's where the tech whispers. You all will be creating the office verse. So we're giving you the language to talk about it. We're giving you the framework to make their choices. But you're going to be the one that has to make the choices and then has to bring bring the office verse to life.
1: Yeah, you know this. You think you're really giving us some good clarity here now in terms of how your research came together and how to be thinking about these things in new ways and Christine, the first two spectrums, first one is around purpose. What's the purpose of the office and officing, the new verb that you came up with, and then outcomes, right? You talk about what are the desired outcomes from office and office activities. And I believe we have smart folks here who listen, and I I, I know these are topics on their mind, but I think where they're getting stuck is they're looking at these through the lens that they know, right? maybe decades of experience. So can you kind of help us see this through a new lens, Christine?
2: That's a challenge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we we have the question of purpose as as the first spectrum, the first thing that we want people to be thinking about in light of, of the office shock that they've been going through. And this is, again, it's a question for an individual. What purpose do they want have in their life and, and involved with their working in an office. It's a question for organizational leaders <clears throat> in terms of what is the purpose of this organization. <clears throat> I'm sorry, we have a bit of a cold here. And it's also a question for community policymakers. And when we say community, we're talking everything from a local community to the world. And interesting questions about, about purpose come up there. On the spectrum, we say that purpose ranges from the individual to the collective. And it's important to think about that because for an individual first starting out in the workplace, their purpose may be very straightforward in terms of I need to support myself and my family. But as they get further in their career, they can kind of enlarge their thinking about can I have a purpose that actually can make the world better? And the same thing is true for organizations. They may start out very focused on on getting their business going, but then later can, in fact, think about, can we somehow contribute to the world? And in that sense, the second spectrum, outcomes, is very closely related because purpose is your intentions and outcomes are the results, basically, of your intentions. So, uh, again, you may start out with your primary outcome being profit, if you're a person supporting yourself, if you're an organization, profitability for the organization. But then once you're established and comfortable, you can think a much larger purpose of bringing prosperity to the world, uh, whether that world is uh, local again or, or much larger. And a good way to think about it is outcomes at the profit level are very much focused on how do we reward our stockholders? And that has traditionally been a concept for the corporate being forever. But what we're saying is we really need to think about outcomes for stakeholders. And stakeholders are everyone associated with the organization, including employees who are often not viewed as stakeholders and our customers and our communities who, with whom we have a very, very strong relationship and can impact in a very significant way. So how can our outcomes go from purely looking at stockholders to looking at the much larger concept of stakeholders?
1: Yeah, very helpful. And Joseph, I'm probably not supposed to do this, but I, I wanna jump out to spectrum seven because I think it's also very timely to this audience. It's around agility. And obviously, every C level leader is trying to build that more agile, nimble organization, trying to differentiate their companies. In the book, you talk about, in the preface, you talk about COVID created an environment where fix became fluid. So, what does the agile, resilient office look like in Office Shock?
3: Well, literally, we visualized it actually on page 152 and, and referred to it as an archipelago of agility. And we take inspiration from distributed autonomous organizations. And we do see many signals despite the recent issues with cryptocurrencies. But we do see the potential of technologies like the blockchain to be able to give more flexibility for creating work contracts. So proof of work is going to be another critical signal to be able to give more flexibility in work arrangements. The clearest signal of what more agility looks like in organizations comes from the gig economy. However, this is going now back to what Chris was talking about, our spectrum of outcomes. If the spectrum of outcomes, if the choice in that spectrum is for profit, then the gig economy turns into an opportunity for in many cases, many cases, abuse. many cases, the disproportionate value of work being done going to a small group of owners. And, And that's also why we see, particularly for the tech whispers, the importance of Web3, because Web3 should open up opportunities for decentralized ownerships of these platforms, which, again... As futurists, we're not predicting but we see some clear signals of increased agility of creative work being done, of knowledge work being done. And these are the ways that we believe that agility is going to really be augmented through the technologies. And ideally, there will also be conversations about how to become more of a teal organization where the culture is much more the culture is much more about open communication about shared choice making and shared decision making which again given technologies that will be happening more and more often and that should make this archipelago of agility more and more a reality as we're able to see those shifting groups of workers focused on specific outcomes and projects that they have been tasked to do, within the context of a more prosperous economic model, there should be enough value to be shared amongst the entire archipelago. Well said, yeah, very helpful,
1: Joseph, in terms of seeing that through your eyes. And you know, Bob, the fifth spectrum we touched on it a little bit earlier about augmentation, and there's for me there's two there's two sides to this. There's the exciting side, right? It's the uh, how do you amplify the intelligence of your office we all we all want that, but then you also go on to note again, this is not um your your perspective. this is your research, right? This is how you're looking out, doing future back thinking. You're saying thinking future back, we will all be cyborgs, part human, part computer. That makes me very uncomfortable as I'm sure it does a lot of people. So help us think through that in terms of how we as technology leaders work through that. how do we leverages to disrupt our industries and, you know, what's the opportunity here, Bob?
4: So there's an, there's an opportunity and there's an inevitability. <laughs> so there are some aspects of the future that are kind of on track, they're trends. And they're, the sense of a trend is a pattern of change you can extrapolate from with confidence. And there's a trend here where humans are gonna become more augmented. And the challenge for us is how will we become more automated? I don't like the term artificial intelligence. I think that was one of the worst terms to describe an emerging technology. The term we use in the book is augmented intelligence. Not artificial, but augmented. And the augmentation is inevitable. The nature of the augmentation, that's our choice. And the choice over the next decade is what do humans do best And what do we wanna keep for ourselves? And what do computers do best? And where do we need to be augmented? How does that mix happen? We've got an opportunity to be what Tom Malone calls superminds. And certainly the tech whispers, you're all gonna have to be superminds 10 years from now, And probably many of you already are, but that's going to be the price of entry. (laughs) We're all going to have to be superminds. The question is, what's the nature of that? I'm a writer, so I write books. Ten years from now, if I'm going to be a major league writer, I'm going to have to be augmented. I'm going to have to be using something like GPT-3. And we actually used it in our drafting of the chapter on augmentation. We're going to have to be augmented. The The choice is how the choice is how.
1: Got it. Got it. That's helpful. Christine, Spectrum 3, I know, is one near and dear to you. It's on uh, climate impacts of office buildings. And earlier this year, I had Ralph Laura and Rich Gilbert on different episodes of the podcast. And they're the uh, through the board members of Sustainable IT, which is a very impressive new community that's being established. You probably know Nicholas Sundberg's book, uh, Sustainable IT playbook for technology leaders, uh, great book. But help us think through this third spectrum, Christine.
2: Well, this is an area, again, as, as I was saying in the beginning, our book is for everybody in, in all positions. And clearly, there are very specific ones in terms of climate impact that that CIOs are dealing with, have been dealing with. This is not new. They've been dealing with it for quite some time. and. The book that you mentioned, Sunbury's book and the organization are very important. They're, they're playing a, a very strong role in getting people to understand what their responsibilities are and how to manage this whole area better. I mean, I think there are, there are three good examples. You know, number one, the acquisition of technology. How do we acquire it? Do we need to be acquiring all this technology? We talk in the book about the difference between ownership and renting. Do we need to constantly throw things away and and get something new? Perhaps not. I mean, in Europe, decades ago, they adopted requirements about what components inside laptops could be. And they tried to do away with the laptops that had mercury in them, et cetera, because of the longer term impact of that. But we never did anything like that here in the U.S., So there's there's a lot about the acquisition of the technology. Secondly, there's this huge aspect of how do we manage it once we have it? Electricity usage, there's a lifetime where we need to talk about minimizing the impact, the environmental impact of our technology. And ultimately, how is technology disposed of when it's retired? Uh, This is a huge question that goes far beyond recycling. Again, if you, if you don't own it, maybe you can give it back. You don't have to recycle it. Maybe there are uses that the owner can have for it and that involve redeploying the technology somewhere else. So it's, you know, cradle to, we, we don't like to say cradle to grave anymore. It's kind of cradle to rebirth is what we're looking for, the circular economy. And for CIOs, the circular economy is this whole area of acquiring, managing, and disposing of technology.
1: Yeah, really, really good thinking there. And as someone with a lot of gray hair, I like that getting rid of that that grave thing. Right, let's go right to the uh, to the <laughs> rebirth. I like that, Christine. Uh, so, so Joseph, great conversation. I want you to put a big bow on this. You are our resident master of storytelling. You're great at the narrative. We struggled that in our space. So what are some practical steps that we can take as we write our own personal stories here? And I know you actually have a section of the book on this.
3: Yeah, so I think we are all learning about how to be better storytellers. We, in the book, make a couple of recommendations based on the neuroscience of storytelling. What we really revel in as futurists is the ability to imagine those futures that are plausible because they are based on signals that that we see and that we've been researching. They are provocative uh, because we are taking, as Bob said, those signals baked into a trend which is accelerating it so that they are more widely adopted. And we really are emphasizing, particularly in office shock, the preferable futures. We, I think are all of us, I'll speak on behalf of my my co-authors, uh, we are optimists. Our colleague from the Institute for the Future, Jane McGonigal refers to the importance of being an urgent optimist. And we need that in light of this, the shocks that we face. So the question to your point, How do we become better uh, storytellers? Well, there's two points that I think are really important that we bring in the book. Number one is, as Bob just described, using technology, using information to augment our ability to tell stories. And what we have in the book is one of our illustrations of a future was myself being augmented by mid-journey. Uh, which is a popular uh, AIR generator. So what we've also been starting to do with many of our many of the organizations that we work with is to use this augmentation to be able to help everyone create stories from a preferred, provocative yet plausible future. Now, what I wrote about in, my book called Story Making, which we did research in my uh, teaching capacity at the Politecnico de Milano, is the importance of having people tell their stories, but then more importantly, to be able to converge on a shared story of the future. And the shared story of the future is what we believe to be that secret sauce of future back thinking because if you're able to bring people together where they're all able to tell stories that are meaningful for them, where they envision themselves, their organizations and their communities with more purpose, with more outcomes, with more belonging, et cetera, et cetera, then to be able to merge those into a shared vision of a future, that's a really powerful place to have that synchronization That then you can begin to work backwards and say, okay, so if that's our shared story of the future, well, what are going to be some of the experiences in that future? What's next? If that's the future, then what's next? What kinds of products, services, data, interactions, policies, what would all that feel like? And then we can begin to say, okay, so if that's what's next, then let's start to talk about what we need to do now to be able to bring that preferred future forward. And that's actually a comment in the beginning of the book, before the contents, before
1: the preface. And I think it really speaks to the heart of the book and, and how you created this for us. So we're going to put a, a wrap on this. Bob, the book launches today officially. It's going to be a bestseller. There's no question in my mind. It's going to be a blockbuster given the times. I want all my CIO, CHROs, C-level friends to go get it and literally have a book group in your C-suite because you need to get a grip on this conversation. Because we're talking about old thinking in that cage, and this is going to set them up for future back. How do we get the book, Bob?
4: So we'll put in the background here how to reach our publisher, Barrett Kohler. It's available on all the channels. It's coming out in uh, in paperback right away, and it's an audiobook right away. It's an ebook right away. We do have a group ordering deep discount that will also pop up at the end of this at the end of this broadcast. So the the message I'd like to leave you all with is this is essentially a framework of choice a future back framework for your choice making. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're help we're here to help you make smarter choices and you can be clear, you can't be certain. You can be strong, you can be future ready. You also need to be humble. These are going to be challenging times.
1: So so well put. So well put. Bob Johansson, Chris Bullen, and Joe Press, thanks so much, Uh, so good. My good friend, Carla Rutter at the Enterprisers is gonna turn this into an article on the Enterprisers project. So be on the lookout for that. I think that's gonna be another great set of of insights from our three authors here, but thank you each for making time. I know you're on the global book tour and I know it's a busy time, but congratulations and thanks for what you've done for us here. Again, the book, Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living. Thanks so much. Thanks so much,
2: Dan. Dan. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woollette and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks
2: for listening. Until next time.